Hello, everyone. Good morning. Um, just a, before I get into the word, just a, a reminder, most know about this already. I've been talking about it a lot, but maybe some of you are a little bit on the newer side. Um, in the month of May, we are going to uh, be doing something a little bit different in terms of like how we, just kind of how we, how we do church. Um, so we are going to come May, not yes, we'll talk about this more after Easter, but starting in May on the first and third Sundays of every month, we'll do exactly what we're doing this morning. We'll come together in this space, in this sanctuary, and we'll sing songs and we'll preach the word and, you know, fellowship and, and do everything we do, have coffee and the whole thing. Uh, so first and third Sundays in May. And then, you know, every month we're going to do it, do it the same. Now, the second and fourth Sundays are going to be a little different. Uh, we're going to be scattered around, and we're going to be doing what we're calling neighborhood gatherings, kind of smaller church expressions in different public spaces all around the greater Providence region. One of those locations will be here. Um, so it'll be not up here in the sanctuary, but it'll be downstairs in the cafe. So that'll be one of the locations. One location, another location is College Hill. Another one is Cranston. Another one is East Providence. And then the fifth one is Warwick. And so anyone can go to any of those, of course, but it sort of makes sense to go to the one that maybe is closest to you, but you don't have to because you might have like two great friends that go to the College Hill one. You want to go to that one. That's fine. Everyone's free to do whatever they want to do. Uh, so again, second and fourth Sundays, starting in May, we will be in these five different locations. Uh, the gatherings will be anywhere from like 20 to 30, maybe in some cases closer to 40 um, people gathered in these, these smaller locations. If you want to know why we're doing this, I could preach a whole message on that, and I probably will share a lot about why we are doing this. Some have already heard me talk about why, but after Easter, we'll really push it um, a little deeper into everybody, make sure everybody's kind of ready, prepared for this. But to boil it down to one thing, it's because we want we are passionate about real discipleship. Yes. We're passionate about body ministry. We're passionate about everybody in in the community playing a role and contributing. Uh, and that happens best in smaller settings. Um, it just does. So a gathering like this is good. Um, we have preachers and teachers that God has appointed to his uh, church to do their thing, and I'm going to do my thing in a minute. And I believe in the preaching of the word. I mean, that's what I do for a living, pretty much, is preach the word. So I'm not trying to uh, take myself out of the equation. I'm just trying to spread out the gifting. Because the Bible teaches that every single Christian has the Holy Spirit. Yes. And every single Christian who has the Holy Spirit has been given giftings to build up the body of Christ. Yes. And so we want to make room, we want to create an environment, structure things in such a way to create an environment that allows those giftings to, to flow. Um, again, 
there's a place for everybody coming together and just hearing uh, the pastor or the preacher, teacher, um, speak the word of God. We believe in that. That's why we call this a hybrid model. It's kind of the best of, of both worlds, the best of the kind of bigger church expression and the best qualities of the smaller church expression. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. All right, well, we're going to dig into this uh, message today. Uh, we're in this series called Desperate Prayers. And today we are going to look at one of the great desperate prayers in the Bible, Psalm 69. Uh, so if you have a, a Bible, you can turn there, or a Bible app, you can, you can turn to it. But we're going to look at Psalm 69, just kind of go through. I'm going to give you some intro thoughts first, uh, but we're, we're pretty much going to go right through the whole Psalm. So this is David's example, really, of desperate prayer in desperate times. It's interesting to note that like other portions of, of Scripture in the Old Testament, the writer, David in this case of Psalm 69, was writing simultaneously about the present, his present suffering, and also the future. And David here was describing his own experiences, but uh, I think without realizing it, was vividly describing the sufferings of Jesus even the sufferings of Christ on the cross. You may even notice as we go through Psalm 69 that several verses are quoted in the New Testament referring to Jesus. I think it's a comfort to know that David experienced afflictions just like we do, but it's an even greater comfort, isn't it? To know that Christ himself, when he was a man on earth, suffered in many of the ways that we suffer. And of course, uh, Jesus suffered and endured to the end, didn't he? Like, think about this. The one who suffered and endured to the end dwells within us to help us, to carry us. You know, it's a bit of a mystery, but the Bible teaches that Jesus lives, if we're followers of Christ, Jesus lives in us and actually lives his life through us. And so we can have confidence that he will carry us through to the end. Now, again, this is a little intro, but it has become an epidemic problem. You probably noticed in this generation that Christians fall away from God when they face desperate times. This was certainly the case in the last few years during the COVID crisis. Uh, multitudes of Christians left the church and many became shipwrecked in their faith. Jesus said in the latter days, the days that we're, we're living in, uh, that the love of most will grow cold. Jesus taught about the reality of falling away in the parable of the sower, for example. He describes four different types of, of hearers, right? And you know, each person hearing the gospel uh, receives the word, kind of receives the word with joy. But because of different reasons, three out of the four fall away. Uh, one falls away because of the cares of life. Another falls away because of the deceitfulness of riches, Still another falls away because of persecution, 
because it's you know, putting social strain on their life or even threatening them. Now, strangely, very few Christians seem to have any real concern about falling away. And I think it's because they've heard maybe too much of only one side of the message of the Bible. You know, that God will never leave them and never forsake them. They conclude there's really no need to be concerned. You know, God's got me. I don't have to worry. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to work out. So I'm good. But the Bible also says that we must persevere to the end in order to be saved. I'll just give you one of many verses. And theologians argue about this stuff and have been for 2,000 years. And I think that we need to realize there's paradox and tension to these things. But this is Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And he goes on, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And the answer here with It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I just want to say to us, let's beware of theological systems and interpretations that allow us to read scriptures like this and feel nothing. Mm, Right? Right? You know, because we can read that, oh, that's that's not what it means. It doesn't mean, it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't mean, listen, it applies. Like we should be, read, these are meant to like put the, the fear of God in us and a soberness in us about following through with our commitment to Jesus. We are called to persevere to the end. But this is saying plainly that if we return to a lifestyle of unbelief, we shouldn't expect to be warmly welcomed into heaven after we die. Is that shocking? <laughs> It's just truth. The Bible does not promise eternal life to backsliders or to people who fall away from the faith. The promise of eternal life is for those who overcome. So how we respond in desperate times or in trials is really critical. It's a matter of really life and death. So my hope in this message is to encourage you to desperately cling to Jesus no matter what happens. Because in this world, listen, you're going to face desperate times. If you're so young, you haven't yet, you're going to. You'll, you'll be there. Anybody who's, you know, has some years behind them knows that. There's just, life is hard at times. We get sick. We have all kinds of physical afflictions, sometimes low-grade Persistent afflictions can be even worse than like big slam in your face afflictions. We suffer injustices from people we're robbed, we're betrayed, we're ripped off at times, we're lied to, we're slandered. We lose loved ones. 
We suffer strain in family relationships. We're crushed at times financially. We lose our jobs. Dreams are shattered. Things we, we thought life was going to be a certain way and didn't turn out that way. We suffer anxiety or depression. These things are real. We feel weak. We are oppressed some seasons continually by the enemy of our souls, even attacked viciously. Sometimes we're utterly afflicted but cannot even point to anything tangible that is afflicting us, which makes it really hard to like tell other people, yeah, I don't know, I'm just not doing well. Well, what's going on? What's wrong? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, there's just no explanation. And so you kind of have to just go through it alone. And so we've suffered isolation. We've suffered just kind of spiritual loneliness at times. These things are all part of the human experience and followers of Jesus are not exempt from any of it. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So we may not be able to control troubles coming our way, right? But we can decide how to respond to troubles. And again, many just don't respond well. It's very easy to get bitter in the midst of a trouble or a trial you're going through. It's very easy to give up on the church. It's easy to go back into sin for comfort. Um, some have gone so far back that they've just deconverted completely from the Christian faith. I've seen it all in over three decades of just watching you know, being a part of the church and just watching the way Christians kind of live things out. I think one of the theologians, it might have been John Stott, saying there's a lot of half-built towers out there, something like that. You know, Jesus said, count the cost before you build a tower, right? And there's a lot of like half-built things, a lot of abandoned structures, Christian structures. And I've watched hundreds of people start the Christian life and not finish it. But Psalm 69 is an inside look at how David responded to his time of affliction. It's a beautiful example of desperate prayer in desperate times. So here are five observations about this psalm. Just five things I see in this psalm that I think will bring some encouragement. All right, number one, if you're taking notes, I don't know if you like to number things. I did number them. There's five points. The first one is the longest, by the way. Number one, David tells God all about his desperate situation. I really love this about David because I think we can learn from this. It's amazing how we have this propensity to be going through really deep things, but not telling God, not being honest with the Lord about what we're going through. We just kind of carry it all on ourselves. Uh, maybe we think that God doesn't want to hear about all the details of our woes and burdens, or maybe we feel like God will be upset because it sounds like we're complaining. Maybe we had an upbringing that, you know, we got to be positive all the time, shiny side up, and, you know, God, read the Psalms. Like, we can be open. We can be honest with the Lord. Um, it reminds me of the hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And I wrote down some of the, the verses. 
It says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And David models this kind of honest praying in times of desperation in this psalm. Verse one, he says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. So David's using several metaphors here to describe the, de- the desperation of a situation, right? Water's coming up to the neck. You know, it's like just the point before going under, right? We've probably seen in movies, like someone is trapped in this like enclosed place and the waters keep rising and rising and rising. What happens? The, the, the intensity of anxiety just increases. This is how he's describing his life. David uses the metaphor of sinking in a deep mire, kind of mud. When you take a step, there's nothing solid. Your foot just sinks in, and it's, it's even hard to pull out. It's hard to take a step. If the mire is deep enough, of course, your whole body can go under and be submerged. People can suffocate. David uses the image of being in deep waters during a flood, powerful waves like crashing against him, and he cannot touch the ground with his feet. Picture that. What's the result? The man will be tossed violently to and fro and probably drown. This is how David is feeling. I don't think he's being dramatic in his use of these metaphors and pictures. He was often in situations, right, we know, because we have all the historical books in the Old Testament, that David was often threatened. His very life was threatened. Maybe we can't relate to that particular aspect of you know, David's trial, but I think we can experience at times spiritual trouble of a similar intensity. Verse 3 says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He's not just whining to himself or others about his desperate situation. He's crying out to God. He's turning to God. He is bringing his trouble to the Lord. He's being honest here. He's getting weary. He's hitting that point of struggle where he just kind of doesn't maybe want to pray anymore. He's getting exhausted. His spiritual eyes looking hard at God are starting to close. He's getting tired of waiting for God to answer. Verse four, he says, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now there are, I just looked this up, the other day, there were about 100,000 hairs on the human, average human head. David was saying there are over, I, mean, I don't think he was meaning literal, but there are, it feels like there are 100,000 people who hate me without cause. 
Uh, that's a lot, right? That's a lot of enemies. I'm sure those who hated me had their reasons, but David stated that their reasons were actually not grounded in anything truthful. They were lies. These enemies aren't perceived by David as just like, well, no big deal. They are mighty and powerful. They can kill David and want to kill him. This is no joke. We can say the same of spiritual forces of darkness who aim to kill and steal and destroy us. It's not a joke. Satan is real. Satan hates us. And maybe there are 100,000 demons who know our name and hate us and would love to snuff us out. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. He wants to destroy us. David says, in essence, you know my heart, God. You know all my sins. You know my wrongs. And the things that I'm being accused of here are fabricated. There's no truth in it. Verse six, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Now this is, I think, the great fear that maybe many of us have, that our trials I know, especially as a pastor, I feel like this at times, that our trials would become so severe that our life would actually repel people from the faith. It would actually discourage other followers of God. Um, that people would look at our particular afflictions and see how we are perceived by the public as like contemptible, and it would cause them to like not want to associate with us and more seriously, kind of not want to associate with the faith. Do you ever feel that? Verse 7, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 9, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. The drunkards make songs about me. <laughs> David is saying that his reproach is a direct result of his love for God. David, just like Jesus, right, had a zeal for the house of God. Zeal means intense fervor of devotion. The house of God represents the, uh, the dwelling place of God, not necessarily a, a physical building, but that God would find hearts to dwell in. Because David was a man of zeal and integrity and righteousness, it caused sinful people, even people who claimed to be followers of the Most High God, to be hostile toward him. And this happens, doesn't it? I mean, why did Saul hate and desire to kill David? Because Saul was jealous. Yes. Why, did, why did Cain 
in chapter four of Genesis, kill Abel. Well, it's because Abel's offering was acceptable to the Lord and Cain's was rejected. It's good old-fashioned jealousy. All of David's loving devotion, his humility, his fasting, his sackcloth, his mourning, his great love for people was translated as repulsive. Instead of people viewing David as a man pouring his love out upon the people, he was viewed as a fool, as an idiot. He was utterly misunderstood and reproached to the point that drunkards created songs to ridicule them, ridicule him. I mean, I think we can relate to this somewhat, can't we? Because I understand that there are, there are some exceptions and there are definitely people who are, you know, maybe ministers who are hypocrites or there's, I know there's scandals that happen and I understand all that aspect of Christianity, but I've been, I've known a lot of Christians through the years and I've known a lot of pastors through the years and most are good and kind and want to uh, do the right thing and want to pour out their souls, you know, to their family members and to their neighbors and to their communities and uh, Christians tend to sacrifice a lot and have through the centuries. And my, like, really, I would say the majority of Christians I know like would almost like do anything for anybody to help, would do anything for their neighbors or their extended family members. And yet the perception in our culture is, can be so skewed, so unfair. You know, Christians are just you know, idiots or holy rollers or narrow-minded, all the different things that are said about Christians. It is beyond unfair. And we just have to carry that, right? We just have to carry. We, we do identify with Jesus. Yes, I'm a follower of Christ. I love Jesus. We say that publicly. And we just have to kind of take on a measure of that reproach from culture. And sometimes from our own friends, right? Or our own family members. Have you ever been just like persecuted by family members? It's like, really, that's hard. It's one thing, okay, whatever the professor, you know, Brown is saying or some, whatever, just different, somebody in the media or some, you know, intellectual person or something. Who, like, I don't really care that much about, but when it's like people who are kind of close to you, I mean, that's when it really hurts, right? Jesus felt that. David felt that. Many of us have probably experienced this, you know, maybe on a smaller scale, but we feel it. All right, here's the second observation I see in this psalm, number two. David makes bold requests on the basis of God's abundant, steadfast love and faithfulness. Verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. David appeals to God on the basis of the abundant, steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. We need to learn how to do this. We need to learn. Satan does not want us to learn how to do this. We need to believe deeply that God is abundant in mercy and love and faithfulness, that he wants to help us and wants to carry us through. 
In a sense, David was saying, I know the kind of God you are. I know your love is steadfast toward me. And I know you'll never turn me away when I cry to you. Verse 14, deliver me. Here, he's just going for it here. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. There it is again. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. These are bold cries. Deliver me. Don't let me go under. Answer me. Turn to me. Don't hide from me. In a sense, he's saying, hurry up. Draw near, redeem me, ransom me. Big, bold, clear requests that David makes of God. These are not suggestions. These are not, uh, these are not the kind of prayers that are like, hey, God, I'm not sure if you're up there listening, but... If you are able to, I kind of have a few things. It'd be nice if you could help me out in a few ways. Yes, Jesus. He's not praying like that. These are not suggestions. These are desperate, bold cries. The Lord invites us to this kind of praying, doesn't he? He loves when we pray audacious prayers. We're invited in the book of Hebrews, it says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. All right, here's the third thing I see in this psalm, all right? Number three, David gets raw and real. David gets raw and real. The way I read this psalm when we kind of hit this point is that David has a moment of vulnerability here. He's not merely listing out more woes, but he's kind of describing how all this has affected his heart. Verse 19, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Verse 20, reproaches have broken my heart. so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They actually gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Hopefully some of these verses are familiar to you. Again, this is David's psalm, but this perfectly describes Jesus, right, on the cross. Remember the soldiers gave Jesus the sour wine, the vinegar when he was hanging on the cross. Christ died alone, surrounded by mockers and haters, and the reproaches broke his heart. Some say Jesus died of a broken heart. He came to his own people, the Jewish people, and they most rejected him. 
David confesses that his heart is broken over all this. Um, but he's confident that the Lord knows the extent of his pain. The two words he uses there, you, you know. You know, God. You know what I'm going through. I think about Psalm 139, right? God perceives our thoughts from afar. God knows everything about us. He doesn't just watch us from a distance and see the outward situation, circumstance of our lives, but he knows what's happening inside. He knows our feelings. He knows the deep places within us. And those two words, you know, they just bring comfort, don't they? God is not aloof from what happens to us. He, all, he, he, he sees how everything is affecting us. David is saying in so many words, nobody knows the pain and heartbreak I'm experiencing. But you do, Lord. David really needed a friend to comfort him in his trouble, but he found none. He really needed someone to, to sort of empathize with him. But he couldn't find anyone. Some in this room right now are going through that exact same thing. You're suffering in ways that are almost unbearable. You wish someone would take a genuine interest in your desperate situation. You know, you try to bring it up maybe at different times, but... You can tell people aren't interested. You're dealing with a broken heart and dealing with it alone. The only comfort available in times like this, listen, is the comfort of knowing that the Lord knows our pain. Hebrews 4.15 says this, for we do not have a high priest. This is speaking of Jesus. We do not have a high priest or a savior who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, here's the fourth thing I see in this psalm. David works through his anger by venting to God about it. Now, these next seven verses that we're going to walk through will sound maybe a little strange to us. David sounds almost malicious, okay, toward his enemies. Most of us would never pray like David prays here. Part of the reason is because we live in a different age, right? David was a, a man of war. Much of their faith in the Old Testament was kind of tied in with battling against physical armies and crushing the Philistines and all that. Like, we're not crushing Philistines. We're not going to battle. We don't carry swords and all that. But it still seems wrong to wish harm on anyone. So what do we make of these kinds of prayers? Well, listen, it's okay to be comforted by the knowledge that one day God will ruthlessly deal with injustice in our world. These words may be David venting the anger of his heart in raw honesty and actually taking some comfort in the fact that God will exact vengeance in due time. All right, let's read the verses. These are intense, all right? These are intense. Let he just changes his tune. He was getting all sad and vulnerable in the you know, first few, oh, I'm brokenhearted. And you, know, you feel all sad for David. And then he just like, 
something comes over him. He's like, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Whoa. Imagine if somebody prayed that like in a prayer meeting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, for, I don't know, just like, you know, the south side or something. (laughs) Verse 26, I think, is referring to the way sinful people kick down the righteous when they are down. You know, when God is disciplining one of his children and evil people come along and rub it in. I think even Christians do that, right? You know, some minister falls and something happens and it's a terrible situation. And then all the, you think, you know, Maybe you expect this from the world, but even like Christians are rising up like, yeah, yeah. I, I always knew that guy was an idiot. You know, and just like rubbing it in. It would be like a child being spanked by a father and the other siblings recounting the spankings over and over to humiliate the boy. It's awful. Now, verse 27 and 28 could be paraphrased, paraphrased this way. Let these individuals who have brought so much pain to me, let them go to hell. Let them be shut out of eternal paradise and let them go down to the lowest place of everlasting darkness. It's really similar to the modern verbal assault. You can go to hell. It's the absolute worst thing you could wish for a person. But again, there's an element here of David reminding himself that these injustices against him will not be unpunished. Do you know that Jesus even did that? Like the Bible says in in 1 Peter chapter 2 that when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate, but here's the key phrase, he committed himself to him the Father who judges justly. Even Jesus took comfort that justice will be done one day. Now, this is absolutely a paradox. You have um, people like C.S. Lewis uh, disagreeing sharply with people like John Piper, and you have all different kinds of opinions on what to do with these like kind of malicious-sounding psalms. Can we just hold this intention? Now, we don't want anybody to perish. And yet, there is an element that we rejoice in the future when God will set apart those who love him and he will pronounce judgment on unrepentant sinners. You say, I'll never be one of those who like is rejoicing that God is pouring out judgments on sinners Be careful. You actually will. Because there's a picture in the book of Revelation of the redeemed. And think about it. There's no sin. Like they've been, sin has been eradicated from them. They are perfectly righteous. Because when you see Jesus, you become as he is. And they are rejoicing 
that God is pouring out judgments on the earth. Now, I understand that is very hard for us to understand. Like, oh, I don't, really? Okay, I'm, I don't want to join that crowd. That just seems, that doesn't seem good. It doesn't seem right. There's a tension to this that we're never going to fully understand in this life. But just hold the tension. That's my encouragement. That's a whole message in itself. Let's get to this last point so I can get you out of here on time. Verse, or not verse five, uh, point number five, my final point here. David stands firm in faith by preaching a message of encouragement to himself. Verse 29, I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Here, David, despite his affliction, despite his ongoing reproach and his isolation, his distress, he sets his heart toward the Lord. As I said in the beginning of this message, it's very easy for us to, when we're going through stuff, to just turn away from God. It's very easy to turn away from God in trials. We don't even perceive it as like, I'm turning away from God, but we, we do. We're not looking to him anymore. And we go day after day after day, we neglect prayer, we neglect the word of God, we just neglect, we're not talking to God anymore. You know, we just like shut him out and just kind of do our own thing and, you know, just uh, indulge in our sort of, uh, you know, little comforts and things like that. It's very easy to do that. We sang the hymn this morning. Our hearts are prone to wander, to turn away, right, from the God that we love. But David here shows us a better way. His heart posture is not based on things going well. It's not based on his feelings. We know he feels afflicted, right? It's, it's a decision of the will here. David says, I will praise God with a song and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. By faith, he knows that God will hear his cries and be pleased with them. Verse 32, when the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. And I think he's referring to, you know, see what, right? I think, I think he's referring to when they see the pleasure of God upon David. The humble refers to the small segment of people in David's day who, you know, perhaps had a genuine relationship with the Lord. Maybe these were the ones that he was worried about would, would be discouraged seeing the big trial that he was going through and they would be, you know, kind of turned away from God because of it. But he's declaring here that those who seek God will see God's pleasure in David's life amidst his trials and will be revived. Verse 33, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Now this line to me is like the punchline of the whole psalm. For the Lord hears. Just get, let that sink in. The Lord, in your desperation, the Lord hears your cry. This is what David is choosing to remember. His circumstances are desperate, 
right? He has, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of enemies. He's being slandered continually. He's utterly afflicted in every way, but he stands on the solid ground of knowing that his cries to God are heard. Despite feeling horrible, he knows his prayers do not fall to the ground. The Lord will draw near. The Lord will save his people. The Lord will fulfill his promises. And he will save those who cling to him. Therefore, don't shrink back in faith. Troubles will come. They will. Jesus promised. We will experience desperate times in this world. The Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. We can't change that. Don't follow the example of so many who fall away because someone offended them or because life is hard. The Christian life is hard. We're called to take up our cross daily, right? Deny ourselves daily. Christians for 2,000 years have lived lives of affliction. But when you find yourself in desperate times, do what David did. Don't shrink back. Don't pull away. Don't stop praying. Don't drop out. Don't start doubting. Know that God hears the cries of his people. Take your stand knowing that God knows exactly what you are going through. Not one of your desperate prayers will fall to the ground. In due time, light will break forth and the Lord will settle you and establish you and and strengthen you. This is our God. This is a a walk of faith, isn't it? We, we, We live by faith, not by sight. We're not going to understand all this. We're not going to have every one of our questions answered. But our role is to cling desperately to the one that can save us. Amen? Amen. There's a promise that says, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Well, should we just end it there? You know, okay, good. You know, we don't have anything to worry about. No, because we also are called to cling to him. We can't shut him out. We can't shrink back. We can't turn away from the faith. We can't go back into a lifestyle of sin. Our only job, even if it's like pathetic in, 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 in how we do it, is just to cling to him. Just keep following Keep it his, keep it his coattails. Just keep, just stay with him. Abide. Don't leave. Don't leave. Don't shrink back. Don't cast him off. Stay with him. Amen. 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 To the end. Don't you want to finish well? It's like a race, you know. It is a race. I mean, the Christian life is likened to a great race. Hebrews chapter twelve. Right, run the race with perseverance marked out for you. You know, be careful of the sin that so easily entangles and the weights that weigh you down. You know, follow Jesus. 
fix your eyes on Jesus who endured for the joy set before him. You know, he endured, he pushed through. Listen, here's my encouragement. Jesus is in you. If you're thinking, I don't know, I don't know if I have what it takes to finish the race to the end. Of course you have what it takes. You have Jesus in you. He will help you. He will carry you. He will walk with you right to the finish line. Just keep clinging to him. And don't run away from him. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, I just can't help but to think of just the hundreds of people that I've seen through the years. That I mean, the collective people that we've seen walk away from you in this room. You know, like, it's probably thousands. So many have started to live the Christian life and then abandoned it and cast it off, cast off restraint, cast off the commands of God. Just, I don't want to do this. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own life. I'm done with this. I'm done. It's too difficult. It's too hard. I don't want to identify. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be looked at as an idiot, you know, by the, the culture. Lord, just, there's so many. God, I pray, Lord, that you would keep us Lord, protect us. And I pray that you would bring people back to you. I pray that this would be the year of just prodigals returning home. Lord, bring them in. Draw them back in. But Lord, I pray that you'd put a wall of fire around us. I pray that you'd make us sober. I pray that you'd put the fear of the Lord within us. I pray that we would be uh, just serious-minded about the things of God. Lord, I pray that we would hate sin. I pray that we would not give the devil a foothold. We wouldn't just even open up a crack. We wouldn't get lazy. We wouldn't just, you know, I'm just going to drift along. Lord, I pray that we would not let ourselves drift. I pray that we would be scared when we're drifting. Lord, I pray that you would put, just put a a certain like fear of God within us. Lord, you told us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, may we not get caught up in the just kind of casual way of thinking about the kingdom of God that is so popular in American Christianity. Let us, let us live differently, yes. my God. And we pray this in your wonderful and powerful, precious name. Yes, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening. Thank you, Have a great week.